You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to University Baptist Church. If you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. If you're here all the time, we're glad you're here. My name is Josh. Um, I, I feel the need, perhaps out of insecurity, to qualify one thing. In the spirit of extemporaneous whatnot, the, uh, the youth decided five seconds before I came up here to bring back the, uh, the word insert into the sermon. So if at some point, if at some point um, it seems very much like I, I deliver a non sequitur, you know, at least you know what's the reason for my idiocracy uh, in the pulpit. So, all right, promise not to give that introduction anytime. I just felt like Okay, maybe Josh is losing it, or that would be the perception up there. So, um, today I will begin with a confession, and that is this. I don't like France, uh, particularly Paris. And as I understand it, that's a two-way street. They don't like Americans and particularly Texans. Um, I think, uh, I've wondered about this mutual disdain, and, and I wondered if it comes out of like a bit of a trope. Uh, sometimes we've uh, been conditioned to believe things that aren't necessarily true, um, so if this is the case, I wanted to find the origin of this relationship. I, I think the most broadly accepted narrative that I can find is that uh, globalization, and particularly U.S. multinational companies that really grew up in the Reagan era, are partly responsible for the commercialization of what we might call the most sacred parts of the world. Uh, perhaps the most salient example of this, I have been told, is that one can enjoy a view of the pyramids in Egypt uh, from the luxury of a McDonald's or a Pizza Hut. Um, I've never been to the pyramids, and with the power of Photoshop, I decided to try and check this out. So sure enough, I went on Google Maps, and Pizza Hut is about 500 meters from the entrance to the Great Pyramids. Uh, the French, on the other hand, are, are purists, um, and, and, and let me pay their cultural purity a compliment. Two of my great loves are architecture and certain kinds of cooking shows, so I can tell you this, after years of searching castles on the internet, and also after a few seasons of Chef's Table, uh, beauty owes a great debt of gratitude to the French. This is the country of Mona Lisa and uh, Les Miserables and uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral and the croissant and other wonderful things that we consume. Um, I've never taken one of those geology, genealogy tests, but with my steady diet of Mountain Dew and Hamburger Helper and a fierce commitment to neon textiles, I suspect I'm not French. Uh, so perhaps it shouldn't be a big surprise that, that we don't get along. I thought for the longest time, um, that I was meeting the French halfway with my loves for fries and silk pies. But it turns out my love for those things are really just American appropriations of, of attempts. Um, I think there's a few moments that we could probably point to throughout history that have been express, uh, expressions of the, the rocky nature of this relationship. One of the most recent was the introduction of, of Disney Paris. Uh, Disney for years, really decades, was nearly undefeated in its commercial attempts to, to peddle their, their uh, products all over the world of all kinds of, of things. So after a successful opening of, of Disney Tokyo, I think in the 70s, they started thinking about their next step and really were courted by like 200 different countries from around the world, but eventually they settled on Paris, uh, France, and it looked good at first glance. One billion dollars of, of subsidies from the French government uh, but then it wasn't. Highbrow Parisians started referring to Paris Disney as a cultural Chernobyl. Uh, France's own prime minister, of, or his, their own minister of, of culture, boycotted it, calling it an unwelcome symbol of American cliches in consumer society. Um, it was the, the culmination, really, of, of everything we've been talking about. In, in initially, the, the, the 
theme park bombed. They lost money. Um, they made some changes. Not everything about my opinion of France, though, is informed by cultural issues. In 2014, I went on sabbatical, and for part of that trip, I went to Europe, and um, I did my own primary research. I flew into Rome, and I knew I was flying back from um, Dublin, and for three weeks, the middle was just extemporaneous planning in Ryanair flights. But I, uh, I, I eventually got to London, and I took the channel over to Paris and entered Europe because I was then going to fly to Dublin. And um, I have to admit, uh, Notre Dame, favorite cathedral in the world. It's beautiful. And ever since I read the Da Vinci Code, I've been mystified by the, the Louvre. Is that how you say it, right? And um, I like that Nirvana medley from Moulin Rouge, right? And one time I saw a documentary about, like, what if just humans disappeared all over the globe at the same time? What would happen? And, of course, nuclear plants would blow up and all the things. But one of the, they think one of the longest-lasting pieces of architecture to stand would be the Eiffel Tower. But I can also say this about Parisians. While I was there, two different street vendors tried to bamboozle me. I caught someone trying to pickpocket me on the subway, and their food portions could be considered diet plans for mice. Um, I don't take these things lightly. In 2019, uh, back when the world was still working, my family went to Disney World, and in effort to decompress and process that experience, I crafted a Facebook post, which I uh, enlisted, and I ranked all 68 attractions at Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and Universal. Didn't make it to Animal World. We have a really good zoo here. So uh, at the top of that list, things you'd expect. Uh, the bangers, Carousel of Progress, right? Uh, what, the Living with the Land, Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse, Hall of Presidents, Norway, Haunted Mansion, the good stuff, the iconic stuff. At the bottom of that list, Disney Deer and Dance Party, Stitch Alien Ride France, and the film about France. Um, I'll say it, I don't even think the Mona Lisa is that good. It's very small and, un, you know, unattractive. Whoa, whoa, okay, yeah, all right. Um... There is something that tempers my attitude about France. On September 11th, 2001, two planes hit the World Trade Centers that eventually destroyed them. Another hit the Pentagon. And uh, a fourth was taken back by um, some, some passengers from radical ideologists. Uh, Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. And I was stunned. America was stunned. If you remember, you were stunned. The world was stunned. And I'll never forget in the days after trying to make sense of what happened, global sympathy poured in. And perhaps the most salient response from all of that was from a newspaper called the Le Monde, a French newspaper whose headline read, we are all Americans. And then there was this on September 11th, before the day was even over, students laid out the American flag in Chesedero Square with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And what does this mean? It means that despite our emotional differences, we're all capable of connecting on the most profound level as humans in an instant. There's a word for this. It's called solidarity, and it comes in many forms. One of my friends, Kent McKeever, is a lawyer, and uh, part of what Kent does is offer spiritual and legal advice to the formerly incarcerated. As you might guess, reintegration into society is not easy for those with a criminal record, and some of that we might attribute to the wisdom of caution, but some of that is, is systemic and discriminatory. So in 2017, Kent decided to tell the story of his clients in a very visible way. For 40 days of Lent, he wore an orange jumpsuit every day to bear the assumptions and the stares of people and to offer advocacy in response. Now, to every act of solidarity is of that magnitude. Still, this seems worth sharing. In 2011, UBC had a, an event called the, the Mikasa Olympics. 12 to 15 home groups gathered in the park for one Sunday afternoon to 
participate in riveting events like the dizzy bat swing and the mile and hipster jousting and other things. And um, in the spirit of the festivities, many of these home groups ordered t-shirts. For example, my group with our proximity to the, to the northern border and, and given our last name were the Carnadians, right? Uh, one group though came up with something entirely different. The best choice went to the Browning Mikasa. Addie Browning was just a few months old and was wearing one of those head reshaping helmets that you sometimes see infants wear. So instead of a t-shirt, the entire Browning family wore Addie helmets. Since we've already done foreign policy, let me say this about Canada. In 2017, um, Canada Tire uh, did a commercial um, and that is all the introduction I will give you. Let's watch this. said this before, but if you were to take away the entire Bible and tell me I could only have a few verses to remember it by, I would undoubtedly pick the Christ hymn from Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it's drenched in Christology, and it, it's hymnic in form, which, um, given what we know about the dating of Paul's letters, is likely one of the first really good attempts to do theology in the church. So before Mark wrote Mark, potentially 20 years before that, the church was singing, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This, of course, is the ultimate act of solidarity in human history. Uh, God became human so that humans might become God, St. Athanasius and then St. Irenaeus, and then again, C.S. Lewis echoed in the 20th century. Theologians have made a lot out of these verses. Uh, this idea that Jesus made himself nothing, it has a name. It's called kenosis. It means to self-empty. And I think this concept is at the heart of discipleship. It is the suggestion that the Christian life is one that pays very little attention to its own rights and privileges because it is enamored in, 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 by, with entering into the world of others as an act of love. Jesus became human. Jesus chose to play basketball in a wheelchair. Jesus wore the head-shaping helmets, and Jesus wore an orange jumpsuit. Uh, the Bible verses we read from 1 Corinthians today represent an invitation to this kind of kenosis. So here's the situation in a nutshell. Um, in Corinth, as is the case for most of um, Roman-occupied cities, there was a temple, and um, the temple's where the social life happened. It was a place of funerals. It was a place for weddings. It was a place for the Lions Club to meet. Um, it could be doubled as a market, right? Um, Roman cultic religion was very much a civil affair. And so very often at these civic gatherings, food was brought, offered to an idol, a, a deity to represent the, the, the person of the temple. And um, if not all of that food was consumed, 
they didn't just throw it away or compost it. That's a kind of luxury that we have in the 21st Western part of the world, 21st century. In Corinth, in the first century, food was rare and precious. It was literally kind of a form of currency. So if there was leftover food in the temple, uh, the temple priests would take the excess to the food to the market. And it was a way to sell and then fund the temple and um, put to practical use people's very real sacrifices. Uh, So here's the variety, or here's the problem. Um, You have some Christians who are like, it's no big deal. we all know that idols ain't no thing. Let's just consume the meat offered to idols. They were probably like the Enya 3578 Corinthians who thought emotions were all fake. Um, on the other hand, you have the Enya 1, 2, 6, and 4s who were like, have you no decency? This food is idolatrous. It is tainted with spiritual badness. And of course, the Enya 9 Corinthians were like, hey, everybody, let's get along, you know, whatever. Um, Paul has a very concrete solution for all of this. He says that those with progressive perspectives should acquiesce to the emotional needs of the less evolved. That is... They should surrender their privilege to inhabit the emotional space of the other. They should give up their rights, wear the jumpsuit, the head helmet, and play in the wheelchair. I wonder if we take this episode from 1 Corinthians 8 as paradigmatic for practical theology. What does it teach us about the nature of theology? I think it suggests, among other things, that a theology that dispenses of my neighbor's emotional well-being is bad theology. Said differently, Being right isn't the most important part of what we do, and it's not the only part of what we do. Um, In this series, in Epiphany, when we were talking about these values that UBC holds near and dear and that we think implicitly make up who we are, we've talked about community and authenticity. And I think for those things to work, they need something to wrap themselves around, a kind of orientation. They need a rallying point to gather and express vulnerability. And for us, that epistemic commitment is what we would call a generous orthodoxy. Years ago, Brian McLaren wrote a book by that name, Generous Orthodoxy, and the subtitle was Why I Am a Missional, Evangelical, Post-Protestant, Liberal, Conservative, Biblical, Charismatic, Contemplative, Fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, Incarnational, Depressed, not, or depressed Yet Hopeful, Emergent, Unfinished Christian. Uh, you can glean from that title what he's trying to do with the book. He, he's reclaiming the positives out of all of those streams and proceeds to describe how they continue to inform his big tent Christian faith. Um, I suppose... That's what I mean by generous orthodoxy, but I also mean something more, and I think something more simple. I think what it has meant for UBC is that we hold our beliefs loosely, that our theological task is done in humility, that at the end of each sermon when I invite the Holy Spirit to correct something I have said incorrectly, the Spirit does that on Monday with an email. Sometimes when I get it really wrong, the Spirit does that by Sunday afternoon in an email, and I really know that I'm in trouble. It's about a posture that I could be wrong or that you could be wrong. It's a move from certainty to conviction. I often tell people we care as much about your attitude towards your belief as we actually do about your belief. This is not to suggest that theology doesn't matter or that we can be lazy about it, but it does mean that even though we take God seriously, we don't take ourselves seriously. And we take Paul seriously in his suggestion that people matter more than doctrine. In her cathartic memoir, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor offers a bit of insight into our relationship with the Bible, which, for the sake of our discussion, is the engine of our theology-making enterprise. She says this, I will keep the Bible, which remains the word of God for me, but always as the word as heard by generations of humans as flawed as I. As beautifully as these witnesses write, their divine inspiration can never be separated from their ardent desires. 
their genuine wish to serve God cannot be divorced from their self-interest. That God should use such blemished creatures to communicate God's reality so well makes the Bible its own kind of miracle, but I hope never to put the book ahead of the people whom the book calls me to love and to serve. Uh, let me use the last few pages of the sermon to make this difficult for us. A few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and we were talking about the psalmist and how often um, he or she talks about relationship with his or her enemy. And then we're reflecting on Jesus's words and what Jesus teaches us about our call to love the enemy. And what we discovered in our conversation is that um, our lives have really been afforded the luxury of not having a real enemy. I mean, not really. Sure, I'm an American who was alive on 9-11. And, uh, but I, I've never been in the army and I've never been to the Middle East. And I know uh, there are terrorists with radical ideologies and that they want me dead for the sin of being American. But that's all abstract, right? Uh, that was a war I never had to fight based on an attack that I wasn't directly affected by. And I don't mean to be crass, I'm just being honest. It is more likely that my sense of enemy is the ideological sparring partner who takes shots at my ego through social media. I mean, honestly, it, it sounds petty, and it is. Um, and if it is, that's further indictment of, of my privilege, and I get that. But I offer that because I think most of you are like me. You don't know an enemy in the sense of the exiled, war-torn Israel in the 5th century new enemy. And you don't know an enemy like a 1st century Roman-occupied Israeli Jew new enemy. The kind of enemy that could casually crucify friends and families to make a point. Uh, our willingness to not only consider, but I think accept Jesus' words about enemy are probably because we don't really have any. So let's be honest. Who is our enemy? Uh, let's talk about masks for a second. Uh, a few months in the pandemic, when I think the first signs of fatigue began to set in and the goodwill started to dis disappear, uh, one of the ways that revolt first took form was that people started bo boycotting masks. Um, you know, they would say, I'm not wearing one, they don't work. And, and I have to tell you, when I, when I first heard this, I thought about this text from Corinthians. And my internal logic went something like this. Suppose they are, object in, in, or they are correct in their objection that masks don't work. Suppose that the only reason we are still wearing them is because some people live with anxiety. What might Paul say to this? I think what he would say is to wear the mask is an act of love. And if the only reason for doing so turns out to be to assuage my neighbor's fear, then to do otherwise is actually a sin. Do you see the solidarity? Jesus seems to have very little interest in our rights. But I should warn you that the, flip can be, or the script can be flipped. Uh, Aziz Ansari has a new Netflix special. He does this 30-minute impromptu stand-up in New York routine. Um, camera follows, follows him. It's very uh, casual. And in this, among other things, Aziz takes on Aaron Rodgers and his vaccination status. And I suspect that's part of why Taylor Beard sent me a text saying that I had to watch it, nearly mandating that I watch it. Uh, Aziz goes after Rodgers, makes a few jokes, uh, and then flips the switch. He essentially says, um, I can keep making fun of him, but nothing's going to change. And then Aziz does something that I have heard very few people do in a public format in the last couple of years. He offers compassion to those who disagree with him. How about you? What do you do with those enemies who disagree with you, whose personal choices might put the lives of others at risk? So we're clear, I'm not neutral about these things. I've had my vaccines, my boosters, and I wear my mask most of the time, though I've made lazy choices and walked into stores without one. But I'm also aware that my generous orthodoxy is only as good as my neighbor love. 
I'll tell you about one of my favorite stories. You've probably heard me tell it before. Uh, Hal Warlick, who was the pastor of the Seventh and James Baptist Church in, in the 70s, he went to Harvard Divinity. And while he was there, he had a professor, Ralph Lazaro. Lazaro was independently wealthy. He had a really nice home in Marblehead, Massachusetts, a home filled with Italian art and impressive furnishings. That evening, the, uh, the dinner was to be served on, uh, among other things, demitas for coffee, very fine dishware. Lazaro uh, made a ritual of inviting first years into his house and invited a few second years to help him serve. And included in those second years was Hal Warlick, students from small towns all over the, the country, modest backgrounds, walked into this, this house of this Harvard professor. And so Lazaro's house is said to have only intensified those feelings. One young lady was feeling particularly nervous and had her demitasse in hand and dropped it and it shattered in the floor and you could, you could feel the anxiety set in. The first years froze. After a nervous second, Lazaro tossed his demitasse into the fireplace where it exploded and declared, I'm glad someone has started the Lazaro family tradition of breaking the cup. He shot a look to Warlick and the other second year students to follow suit and eventually the freshmen joined in thinking they were enjoying this very odd New England tradition. Later, Warlick in, private, in a private moment asked his professor to explain. He said, those cups are valuable not nearly as valuable as a person's spirit. I hope there is nothing I own or ever hope to own that would not be worth breaking to save a person's spirit. Our theology is a mechanism by which we hold lives in our hands. And I hope and pray that yours is generous because someday we'll discover that God's is. May we be a people who abstain from eating meat, who wears head-shaping helmets, orange jumpsuits, and play basketball on tricycles and office chairs. May we be a people who hold the lives of others gently. May we reckon with our lack of love for our enemies and surrender our anger and frustration to God so that it might be transformed. And may we be a people of conviction and generosity. Amen. Um, I typically just go into my prayer. Uh, we have been praying for the city of Waco in the month of January, and um, this is the last week, so... Um, I've I just been naming uh, a few folks that I wanted to highlight and, and treat them as representative of the larger community that we're a part of and ask their names to be a kind of umbrella of blessing. So this week, um, I wanted to pray for our Parks and Rec Director, Jonathan Cook. But I should also say that, um, is Tom Bulk here? Our own Tom Bulk? Oh, yeah, I bet he did that on purpose. Well, he's... Uh, <laughs> One of the chief park engineers. There he is, Tommy. We're praying for the parks department today, buddy. We love Cameron Park. Um, our airport, Jill Martinez, takes care of our airport for us. The health department is run by uh, LaShawn and Marley Horn. Uh, Lisa Tyre, I hope I got that, runs our utility service. We all have water comes to our house. Sewer takes it away. It's, it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of people. Um, Deidre Emerson is... Uh, the deputy city manager, there's a few of those as well, but um, she's sort of the vice president of things that we've already prayed for our city manager. So again, just folks that uh, work so hard to make this community beautiful, and we do want to bless them and, and know that as citizens of this community, we're behind them. So um, we trust that God has heard me speak their names. So I'm now going to pray for the city, and then I'll pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for Waco, and we thank you for this month to be uh, people of faith, to bless and to speak blessing over Waco, Texas. Um, we do lift up those folks we've named to you, and we're so grateful for the, the, the needs that are met and also the luxuries that we have, like utility services and, and parks. 
Um, so we pray for our leaders, and we pray for the people who work so hard to make Waco what it is and beautiful. And God, um, in light of, of the sermon today, we ask that you would make us a people of generosity and thought and indeed, and that our hearts would be those that hold the lives of other people gently, and that we would surrender our rights and our, our, um, our privilege for, the, for the, the sake of the other, for the comfort of the other, for the, the joy of the other, and that that would be our joy. So Holy Spirit, these things are hard, but we trust that you're active and working in our lives, and so we trust you to move. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of the worship, we like to take time and collectively listen to the voice of the Spirit in silence. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. <laughs>